Our scripture this morning is in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the word of God. In a 2020 article in the New York Times called The Rise and Fall of Carl Lentz, the celebrity pastor of Hillsong Church, uh, they recount the story starting in the summer of 2017 when Justin Bieber abruptly halted his tour um, and said that he needed to take a break and then announced the story of his conversion, citing Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz as a second father, a spiritual father. Their association catapulted Lentz onto the likes of the Oprah Winfrey Show, and Hillsong Church became known for celebrities showing up at their door in New York. He showed up on Kourtney Kardashian's Instagram. He was jet-setting with the rich and famous. And then on November 4, 2020, New York Times writes that Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong, an Australian megachurch, who, by the way, ironically, has now resigned out of allegations of sexual misconduct, announced he fired Mr. Lentz, citing leadership issues and breaches of trust, plus a recent revelation of moral failures in an email to churchgoers. The day after the announcement, Mr. Lentz confessed on Instagram, where he has almost 700,000 followers. I was unfaithful in my marriage, the most important relationship of my life. But sexual infidelity was only one piece of the story. Mr. Houston also connected Mr. Lentz's dismissal to general narcissistic behavior, manipulating, mistreating people, as well as breaches of trust connected to lying and constantly lying. I read another article in the Daily Mail that goes in far deeper than I will go in up here to his affair with Renin Karim, a Brooklyn jewelry designer. It was a six month romantic relationship, but it was not just a fling. It was actually a deeply connective relationship built on the basis of him telling her that he was a sports agent named Carl. How is that possible? How is this kind of living possible? James calls this double-mindedness. He says a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. Now, I use Carl Lentz as an extreme example because he's literally pretending to be a different person. He's carrying two actual identities out into the world, building them at the same time. And as he's doing, the gap is widening. And he is going to split in half at some point. And of course he did. And fortunately, I'm not here to condemn Lentz. Fortunately, Lentz wrote that when you lead out of an empty place, you make choices that have real consequences. I was unfaithful in my marriage and I am gonna be held accountable for that. And he is rebuilding, in my hope, a singular life, as much as is possible for any of us in this existence. 
Double-mindedness in this text could be most accurately translated as a person with two souls. So this is saying that I am actually of two souls when I act in a double-minded way. Of course, we only have one soul. So to live as if it's possible to want two opposing things, to ask in trust but then to doubt, is to become a person with a splitting soul. And then James, when he is writing this text, he's writing, if you remember last week, to the church. So he's saying, church, you can't be a church. You can't be a people individually and corporately who are straddling the fence. You will be known as doubters. You will be waves blown in the wind. You will be unreliable, unstable, hypocritical, which is exactly, of course, what the public will want to use this story as ammunition for. This is no foreign subject. We've talked about this plenty of times on Sunday. So let's step back from our current cultural reality for a second and look at how transcendent and ancient this idea is. Aesop writes in one of his famous fables, The Dog and His Reflection. He writes, a dog to whom the butcher had thrown a bone was hurrying home with his prize as fast as he could go. And he crossed a narrow footbridge. He happened to look down and saw himself reflected in the quiet water as if a mirror. But the greedy dog thought he saw a real dog carrying a bone much bigger than his own. If he had stopped to think, he would have known better. But instead of thinking, he dropped his bone and sprang at the dog in the river, only to find himself swimming for dear life to reach the shore. Now, I don't know about you, but that <laughs> Aesop has a way with words and he can just he can just package it right up into this very rich, memorable image that when we are thrown into anxiety and instability and insecurity, most often it's by our mind, by a suggestion, by words from someone that we imagine that threaten us, by a picture of a woman or a man who looks much better than us or is much more successful than us. And we find that it can bring us into this spiral. We leap off the bridge into the water and we're now swimming mentally for dear life in a moment where everyone looking around would just think, what's changed? What has really changed? It's the suggestion. It's the seeing of the image. And what this does is this illuminates with us, and this is what we touched on a little bit last week, that there, that's a symptom. That's a symptom of something. That we have split loyalties alive and well in ourselves that are ready to be fed within us. And if we give them the time of day, if we feed those desires, they will grow. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James is saying here that if you ask God and are faithful that he will give you what you need, then you can take the bone and you can walk. You don't need to look at reflections. You don't need to get caught up in fear or anxieties or phony imaginations of your mind that cause you to doubt. Because all that is, is that is your mind saying that it knows better than God. Ellen, Carrie, you both talked about the importance of being present. And part of the act of being present is trusting in the grace of God for your unique life, not 
that you will be someone else or someone else or someone else that you've just seen, even this very morning. But that God in his grace is trusting, is asking for your trust that he's going to lead you into wholeness. He has given you the bone to carry across the bridge and you just need to not look down at the water and see the reflection and get greedy and jump off a cliff. But that is what our fears and desires and the suggestions of our mind can do. So James' intent here, by the way, is wholeness. Though these are cautionary tales, it is not James' intention to condemn us. In fact, he says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. That means God does it without condescension. He's not looking at you and saying, man, again, really? I think so often when we sin, that is the place where the devil gets a stronghold on us so quickly because we go, I did it again. I'm not worthy. I can't even go and repent in good consciousness right now because I just did it. Clearly, I'm messed up. Clearly, I'm broken. And he actually says here, if you lack wisdom, in that moment where you realize I'm broken, you can admit I lack wisdom. And God gives generously and he doesn't condemn you. We're we're working on memorizing Romans 8. One, if you haven't, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's like an anthem for us in this church. If you want to have an identity in Christ, you need to memorize and repeat that over and over because you will sin. We all sin moment to moment. There is no condemnation. God is for me. He is for wholeness in my split soul. Jesus wants me to be whole today. And it's important to realize that God has made his business in this life on this earth since the fall to speak into chaos. This is his job description. This is what he does. God is a God of order who speaks into chaos. But we are creatures that are birthed from a certain kind of chaos. We have that original sin in us. And when we dive into ourselves, chaos into chaos, Without any intermediary, what's going to happen? James says, you're like waves. Josh White of Door of Hope, he goes into this over and over, sort of on his diatribe against the self-help world. He says, you don't want to go into my soul. You don't want to be in there. It's disgusting and dark and gross in there. Nobody wants to go in there. And you can get lost in there. And I resonate with this so deeply because without Christ to dive into my own soul is a very dangerous thing. I will find things in there that will reinforce every horrible belief I have about myself. And I will just begin to spin and chew those around. In Job 28, says this, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It can't be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. Job is just saying what Josh White just said, what I just said. It's wisdom isn't deeper inside of you. It's not in there. That's the chaotic waters. That's the deep that says it's not in me. And so James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know what you're doing, the message translation says, ask God. Ask God. We have to go outside of ourselves 
to have wisdom from how to live. The wisdom for our life, we believe as Christians, comes from the revelation of God, the revealing God does from outside of us into us. So Proverbs 4, 7, it says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Now that seems like a paradox, like a circular riddle, but when you realize that wisdom comes from without, then if the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, it's not saying just go churn things out and make hypotheses and, and learn from your mistakes. It's saying more than that. It's saying go get the revealed God into you. And then whatever you get out of that plus your life, that is insight. Any experiences you have lived out of faith and trust, that is insight you can live by. That's memory you can trust. So that means wisdom is primarily not a thinking thing. Wisdom is a doing and remembering thing. Wisdom comes out of putting the revealed truth of God into our bodies and letting it mix up in there. James K. Smith writes, you are what you worship. I've talked about this a lot. This has fundamentally changed the way I think about how we live. He goes, we are bodies primarily of desire more than we are thinking bodies. So it's not so much I think, therefore I am, but I want, therefore I am. Doesn't that ring true? That rings true to me. It's, it's not just that I can think and cognitively discern. No, it's that I am motivated by my wants. I get up and I want. I go somewhere, I go there because I want. Everywhere I am, I am wanting something. Sometimes I'm not even conscious of it until I don't get it. But I am a wanting creature. And the want is actually worship. When we come to worship God, we are coming to want him. That's why we come to church. We are saying, some days I don't wake up on Sunday wanting to do this, but I'm going to come out of a habit, out of a discipline, because I know that I need to want Jesus even if I don't want him right now. We are what we want. By wanting something, we actually become worshipers of it. We begin to develop a hunger for it. We seek it out. We taste it. We like it. We come back. So the journey of Christianity is actually to fall in love with Jesus so that you want to come back to him, be introduced, be excited, be enamored, say, I haven't seen this before. Say, I left feeling a kind of peace I haven't felt before. I haven't gotten that from anything before. I want that again. I truly, honestly want that. As Carrie said, where else would I go? That is now talking not to my brain, but to my heart, not to my intellectual ability to figure something out, but to my actual desires that fuel the engine of everything I do. So our fallen condition then can be boiled down to an examination of what we want and how we're getting what we want. Because there is lots of things we want and there's lots of ways we're trying to get them. We want prestige, we want sex, we want love from others, we want purpose and impact, we want money, we wanna be better, or at least we wanna be at least as good as that person. There's so many things that fuel what we do in the day to day. James later in chapter four says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your desires, your passions. 
So James is, he gets it. He says, fundamentally, your spiritual life is a war of the wants. And it's a war waged from the place of want. And so we are our own worst enemy. In Aesop's fable, the dog is its own worst enemy. It has the bone, it's crossing the bridge, and it jumps off because of a delusion, right? But it's so relatable. We've all jumped off the bridge. We all jump off the bridge. Today, you will jump off the bridge. It's going to happen. So how do we learn and grow from that? It's as if we've signed up for two teams, right? And when one calls, we go. And then when the other calls, we go. And whichever pays us more, we find our allegiance. And then at some point, they're all, they're both going to call at the same time. And then you have a conflict. Oftentimes, that's when the jig is up. That's when other people see the actual depravity of your soul. They see what you actually want. And usually what it is, is that you want you. You want whatever you want right now. Because I want what I want. So just give me what I want. Who cares if it's not what I wanted yesterday? If you lack wisdom, James says. So wisdom is not knowledge. It's linked to desire. So we have to ask ourselves, do we desire the truest things? A couple weeks ago, we talked about um, the tree. And I'm, I go back to Genesis all the time. As you know, we talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I said, don't eat from that tree, right? Don't eat from that tree. I'm going to rename for a second that tree just to help us remember what it's all about. We each, I think, mentally, in our, in our mindscape, in the world we live in, we all have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that garden up there. There's a tree of life up there. That's the spirit within us. And there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil hanging out up there. And that is the tree of I know better. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is simply a tree that says, I know better. Everybody has that. And with those two trees up there, here's what you're doing. You're either uprooting or you're fertilizing them, right? So if that tree of I know better is just being left alone, that thing's growing. You got to be actively uprooting the tree of I know better every day of your life. But often what we're doing is we are uprooting it one day with our friends and then later in the dark at night, we're out there fertilizing it, right? We're laying in bed, turning things around going, it's not fair, right? Why, why, are, why is there life? Like, why, why am I not like my brother and my sister? Why, what happened to me, right? I'm turning around and I'm just fertilizing all night long. The tree of I know better. So it's no wonder I wake up in a funk. It's no wonder, right? In your mind are these two trees in the ancient garden. They're there. And you're not leaving them alone. That would be the devil's lie. And that's why our souls feel so schizophrenic. Arthur Brooks writes for The Atlantic. He's an author and social scientist. And he's devoted a bunch of his life to the study of happiness or what I would call wholeness, I think he does too. In other words, where culture in general, or how culture reaches happiness or wholeness. And he starts by talking first and setting up a contrast with pleasure, pleasure and true happiness. He says, animals seek pleasure. It is the human animal instinct to seek pleasure. And seeking pleasure for the human 
is something that's going to lead to addiction, right? Because pleasure is felt, it's momentary. And when we feel it, we get like a hit from it, and then we become more or less at its mercy, right? We, we desire it again, and when we get it, it's not lasting. It comes and it goes, and so there's this instinctual, almost biological response to pleasure. It's, it's something that happens literally within our flesh. And, we, and that hunger that we have for pleasure steers a lot of our life. If we repeatedly bow to the altar, then that pleasure becomes God. We are what we worship. We are fu fundamentally desiring creatures. So he talks about all of the avenues for pleasure, and they're far-reaching. They're, they're more than the basic ones you would think of. Experiences of adventure. Of course, there's gambling and greed. Of course, there's power and control. Hunger for affirmation. The extrinsic, extrinsic values, things like our salary brings us, or the acronyms after our name bring us. All of these things actually give us endorphin hits. They're hitting the pleasure centers of our brain. And so James is saying, wholeness for the person with two souls requires an examination of our deepest wants. Actually, it requires an examination of our pleasures and seeing how much of the engine of our life is actually manipulated. It might be very socially acceptable manipulation, but we are socially gearing things to feed those pleasure centers. And James just lets the cat out of the bag and he says, you're going to be like a wave in the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. I've started a practice of praying for 10 minutes in a pretty much silence and solitude manner with a woman named Ruth Haley Barton, who's a spiritual director. She has a podcast and there's just this bit in the podcast, the 10 minute piece, and I've found this very helpful. And I sit with it and I pray. And what I mostly do for the first 10 minutes is just sit in silence and try and listen for God, which by the way, is not something you can just do right out of the bag. And I will not tell you that I've heard from the Lord Almighty, the word of God, but I'm just sitting there trying to truly still myself. She likens it to letting the glass jar just settle. It's all shook up and it takes a long time to let it settle. And then she says a really powerful thing. She says, now tell God the truest thing about yourself. <sighs> what comes out when you actually honestly say the truest thing about yourself is very revealing. It might be something like, I'm broken. It might be something like, I feel insignificant. It might be something like, I'm confused. Often the most true statements we make about ourselves are actually then fertile soil for the devil to get in and start getting you to fertilize that I know better truth. That statement, if, if you reveal to God, I am broken, but then you immediately dismiss God and just start to pummel yourself, condemn yourself, or say, God can't help me. I truly am broken, right? Something is truly fundamentally wrong with me. I really am confused. I'm so confused, John, you're confused. What are you doing leading? You know, like it just spirals. It's a total spiral. So she doesn't leave it there. She has to bring you out of it. She has to remind you, and we have to remind ourselves as we learn a practice like this, that God has not forgotten you. That God says he loves you. But I say, but I know better, I'm unlovable. And he says, 
God says he has plans for you. He wants to laugh with you. But I know better. I say I'm all on my own. I say my life's miserable. I can't, I can't even have a sense of humor. That would be impractical. That would be unhelpful. God wants your wholeness. And for some of us, in the case of many artists or empaths or big feelers, we've trained our feelings for, for 37 years now. I've trained my feelings to be the primary informant of how I should act and what I lack and how I should respond because it's that intuitive sense, right? It's that intuitive sense of listening and going, oh yeah, let's do that. And in the moment, being able to flexibly move and discern, James is saying that is going to get you in trouble. That wisdom is the revealed God coming into all of those finely tuned and important and good discerning pieces and shaping you. There's hope in the revealing of God into your life. So let's look a little bit deeper at this chaos imagery. So James brings up the wave tossed by the sea. And anytime the Bible brings up ocean, wave, sea imagery, it is, it is evoking all the way back to Genesis 1, where the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. For the people of the ancient Near East, the ocean was representative of death, mystery, the great wild, the great unknown. To the sailors, right? This, you, you stayed close to where you could see the shore before they had the navigation that they learned later on. And you would just, you didn't want to go out there. That was the place of chaos. And so the Bible progressively develops this motif and it gives countless stories to illustrate this. Okay, so you have Genesis 1. Now, what do you have next? The flood. The flood is chaos completely overcoming. You have the Red Sea in front of the people of Israel and you have the hordes of Pharaoh behind them. Two chaoses just smashing them together, right? You have the storm when Jonah is out on the sea. You have storms with Jesus. These personify always in these stories. What's happening? There is tremendous doubt of the people in that area. There is split souls. There's chaos within all of that story. But there's also from the chaos order. So in Genesis 1, what happens? The Trinitarian God hovers over the face of the deep and boom, order, order, shaping. In the flood, what do we have? Amidst all of the chaos overcoming all the earth, you have the ark. And how much order is actually, have you ever thought about why there's all the measurements for the ark? All of those measurements spell out all of the order how intense and how revealed this is, how this can only come from God. God gives the exact specifications. That's his order. That's his wisdom. The Red Sea, God parts the water and Moses stands with his staff and leads the people through under the waves, as it were, under the chaos in passage in the Exodus. In fact, in the story of Jonah, when Jonah is thrown up into the chaos, what is the order there? It's the whale. The whale is God's created order to carry, like an ark, Jonah to the shore. 
All of these things are developing this idea that John uses in John 1, that Jesus is the word. And by the word, he's referring to the logos, which is the Greek term for order. He's the wisdom of the universe. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the whale. Jesus is. You see how it's all connected. And Jesus tells those who he teaches, ask, seek, knock, and the door will be open to you. Raise the staff, cross the sea, build the ark, get in it, right? All of these things are all poetic ways that we can understand the through line of the whole story, that it is in the revealed wisdom. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. In fact, the institution of baptism refers to all of those stories. Baptism is a Red Sea crossing. We go down through the water and back up with the blood of Christ, cleansing us with the water. All of that is us going, we are dying into chaos and we are raised up into new life through the logos, through the wisdom. We are in Christ. But we know that that's actually not the end of any of those stories. What happens in each of those stories? It's so interesting. What happens to Noah after he gets out of the ark? We find him drunk on a vineyard in his tent, right? What happens to the Israelites after they cross the Red Sea? They complain and they go, why can't we just, it was way better back there. What happens to Jonah when he gets on the shore and goes, he sits on the hill and just moans and complains in the scorching sun, right? All of these ways we see that even though there is a new life in Christ, we're still going to have splitting of our soul. And he knows that. And that's his grace. That's his gift. Jesus knows that we are going to go at night and fertilize the trio I know better. And so to advocate how we move forward, we do, we can say, I need to go back to go forward. So the, the, I'm an advocate in culture of looking at things through the lens of Christ. I think the world has a lot to offer us. I think psychology has a lot to offer us. I think the science, all of it has a lot to offer. But we need to look at it in tandem, holding the hand of Jesus, going through it with us and coming back out the other side. So is there things you can learn from self-discernment and self-discovery? Yes. But in order to go back, we need to go back with Jesus. We need to go, I actually lack wisdom. And I actually admit the world may lack ultimate wisdom. So I need some wisdom to go back. And I need to be able to run all of this through the filter of Christ. Now, why can I trust Christ to be the wisdom? It is the death and resurrection that gives him the authority for us to trust him. My, my parents were explaining money. Do, and if like your parents with your kids, those who have kids, like explain things and you're like, why are you doing this? They don't understand. Like, I don't think they get it, right? They were, my dad was like going off on how money's backed by the government and this is why it works because there's like an authority there and you can't just write money out. You have to like, you know, it's all a system and they're just going, okay, like when are you going to give us the 20 so we can go shopping, you know? Like, but he's, you know, he's just having fun explaining as dads do. Um, but the point that he was making is actually a good illustration. Why does money work? Because it's backed by the government. Why does wisdom from Jesus actually work? It's backed by the son of God. That's why. 
It's not a delusion. The self-help world will give you lots of ideas if they're not backed by the true logos, the true order, the true arc that will get you through the chaos. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bet on that, right? I am going to see how the logos can be maybe seen better with using some of those ideas. But only once I get the wisdom, only once I'm anchored in, only once that grip is so tight, then I can go through and I can say, okay, world, help me understand Jesus in my reality, right? Or help, better yet, Jesus, help me understand my reality, right? Help me read this life and all that is in it. We can't do the uprooting on our own. We have to have Jesus. Jesus sends his disciples out, remember, and they're out going out to cast out demons. And they come back and they go, man, there's just, we couldn't, couldn't cast these ones out, right? And he goes, yeah, that kind of only comes out with prayer and fasting. Kind of an enigmatic text, right? What are two things that prayer and fasting absolutely biblically is the bedrock of those two things? Complete and utter reliance on Jesus. Complete and utter reliance. I remove eating so that I rely on Jesus to satisfy the hunger pains. Prayer, I ask knowing he's in total control. So Jesus is saying, man, there's some trees that can't be uprooted without total reliance on me. I need wisdom. God is the wisdom, and he's actually good enough, powerful enough, and loving enough to help me cross the Red Sea of my mind and get me to the other side. In other words, wisdom is learning to dance Jesus' dance with the Father in the world of sin and chaos. The same dance Jesus is dancing with the Father. We're going to have to learn that step with Jesus to get through the world of sin and chaos because the roots are deep. I heard uh, somebody talking about deliverance. This is a word that's used a lot in certain traditions, not so much in ours. The idea that you are actually free from things. Sometimes deliverance is used in a, in a charismatic term of like, I pray over you and you're delivered, right? I'm gonna deliver you, I'm gonna loosen bind, I'm gonna do all this stuff and I'm gonna get you healthy and whole again. But deliverance is far more of a lifestyle change than it is a moment. Deliverance is actually a daily action. We are daily in a state of deliverance, of saying, God, know me, search me, bring me closer to you. This week, um, I had some moments where I just had to look at Megan and I say, this is really hard. I'll tell you the way I'm acting, I don't want to act. The Jesus in me knows that this is true. And I would just say, now I'm not super proud of the fact that I couldn't actually do the thing and I had to act out and then say the Jesus in me knows this. But there's something there that's a baby step. If I can say, I'm not in my right mind, I'm not acting well, I'm not doing what I want to do, but the Jesus in me knows this. At least I'm starting to go, okay, that's wisdom. I don't have it right? I'm not acting out of it. I want it. I don't know how I can actually really want it, like really, really authentically want it, but I know that it's the right thing. And so 
help me get there, Jesus. Like, help me get to a place where when I say what is the most truest thing about me, it's an actual true statement coming from your wisdom. What if I said, what is the very truest thing about me? And I said, I am loved by Jesus. Instead of, I feel completely insane. Instead of, I feel broken. I can honestly say that the truest thing about me is what Jesus believes in me. Now I've begun to steer my wants and my desires from the right place. David Brooks, who writes for The Times, says, to lead a fulfilling life, most of us make four big commitments. To a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to a faith or philosophy, and to a community. Okay, so we've got spouse or family and family. Vocation, what we do, purpose. Faith or philosophy, community. To lead a fulfilling life, most of us make four commitments. The measure of our life depends on how well we choose these four enduring commitments and how well we execute on our promise to them. So what you choose matters. The, the faith and philosophy you choose matters. Then the enduring commitment and how you execute on those promises matters. So remember, Arthur Brooks earlier was talking about pleasure is a basic animal instinct, that pleasure is not true happiness. He actually says beyond pleasure is a term called enjoyment. We've talked about choosing joy a lot. In the root word of end means into, into joy. Enjoyment is choosing. He says enjoyment is elective and human versus pleasure being a basic animal instinct. And obviously he says the elevated pleasure is joy. You get above pleasure. You can see pleasure for what is momentary at the whim of the world and what's happening in it, at the whim of other people, inconsistent. And if you live for it, you will be inconsistent. He says, so get up above it, get into joy. Now he's writing from a secular standpoint, but he still talks about faith being a crucial way that people find enjoyment in their life. If wholeness is a thing that happens to us when we have the right luck, more or less, then we are just living out of our pleasure centers and our feelings. And there will always be haves and have-nots in our world. Often we will we'll be in the have, we won't even be thinking about the have-nots. When we're in the have-nots, we're definitely thinking about the haves. And that desire, that hunger will fuel everything. But what David Brooks is saying is he's saying that our most significant commitments don't last from feelings alone. They come from choices. That's huge. We know that. Those of us who've gotten married, we know that when we make a marriage vow, right? At least we intellectually know that. We learn what that means. And our desires actually begin to change when we live through that marriage, your desires will actually be reformed by that commitment. I, I absolutely know that's true, having lived through that. As a Christian, when you commit to Christ, you think it's one thing, and living through the Christian life actually reforms your desires. And thank God it does. And when you're at a certain stage of it, you honestly can be very anxious because you can feel like, I made the wrong choice. 
I married the wrong person. I got into the wrong church. I got into the wrong faith. I chose the wrong career, whatever the thing is, because you're, you're, you've got the bone, you're at the beginning of the bridge and you're looking over on the side and it's way bigger out in the water. But the life lived out of commitment is incredibly powerful. So talk again about my favorite again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think everybody in this room knows who he is, but if not, German theologian, World War II era, listening to a sermon by John Tyson, who has studied Bonhoeffer at length. And he says, Bonhoeffer is amazing because of his commitment to nonviolence. But he's interesting. In fact, he's even mind-boggling. Because in what world would a man absolutely committed to nonviolence end up in a Nazi prison camp because of his participation in an assassination attempt on Hitler? In what world does that make sense? It seems like Bonhoeffer's double-minded, committed to nonviolence. Why did he go from don't blow up your enemy to blow up Hitler? Like what made him go there? So Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, I was watching the Jewish people being annihilated and I didn't have the luxury of living by the purity of my principles. I said, I will sin boldly. I will violate my convictions for the sake of others and throw myself at the mercy of God. In other words, I have to trust God that my heart is single-minded and I have to do this. Bonhoeffer actually did the most single-minded thing. He honored what was deeply, deeply true. And he said, in the moment, I don't have the whole schema worked out of how the whole world is built and what God wants for this moment, but I am walking with Jesus and I am walking and I know that this is the next step. I have to make. And it's actually tremendous single-mindedness. He gives his doubt into God's mercy. He acts in faith that he now must love by partnering with the order as he understands it to establish a better vision for life amidst death. And he holds that tension in humility. He very well could be wrong, but that doesn't change his devotion. And he doesn't, imagine if Bonhoeffer had cared how it looks. Imagine if he had looked around and said, what should I do? What are other people doing? That's what all of Germany was doing. That's what the national church do. They're going, what should we do, right? Hitler's in power. He didn't care how it looked. He didn't care what will happen to him. He didn't care what social class he will fall into as a result of his decision. He didn't care. He was a university professor, respected, could have stayed in England. He didn't care how it would affect his university hiring prospects afterward. He just made the move. He made the decision out of a single-minded conviction in the present moment in Christ at his mercy saying, what else can I do? I have to do this. And would we remember Bonhoeffer in the same way? if he hadn't demonstrated in his whole life that kind of commitment and single-mindedness. No, he would go from a, a, a person that we deeply admire to a cautionary tale like Carl Lentz. So it is this single-mindedness that is essential to our growth and wholeness. And it's a single-mindedness based on the order of God. Irenaeus, an early church father from the second century, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I really like that. Um, I think there's a tendency as you join a church, as you become a Christian, as you do all this, to actually go through phases where you feel not yourself. 
you're like, I wasn't doing this before. Like, uh, am I fully alive? But the glory of God as a human being fully alive, that maybe God is bringing you through a place right now you might feel split. Some of you in this room might feel very split, very uncertain. And to know that God has a vision for your wholeness. That it's going to affect your body and the way you think about it. What do I see in the mirror? What, I was looking at pictures from our trip this spring break and I saw one and I go, oh, I don't want to send that picture out. I get my head down like that. And I was just like, look at that bald spot. No, thank you. I don't want that picture going out. It affects how we will see ourselves in the mirror. It will affect the control we desire to have over those things. Because God says, I have news. You're not that photo. You're not that photo. High angle, get rid of the double chin, right? God says, I have news. You're not the double chin photo to me. That's not who you are. It affects our behavioral patterns. When I just sinned and I go hide, basically, because I just don't want to look at anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I know I'm wrong. I don't need anybody to tell me. I don't want to confess it. Give me a break. It's my week. I'm up. This week, I have to. Oh, my gosh. Right? It's going to affect our behavioral patterns. And most importantly, at least for me at this stage, it affects our destiny. I can trust that I have a great and beautiful destiny in Christ, that he is actually putting me in the ark to get me through the flood in whatever he's doing in my life right now. So the comparison game has got to go. And we have to honor our commitments. The physician, Chris Ballas, writes on the goal of adulthood. This is a secular physician. He says, the goal of adulthood is to let go of the other possible existences and to make the best of the one. A successful adult is the one who understands that it doesn't matter which life you ultimately pick, only that you live it well. I filter that for Jesus, but I think you all get where we're going with that. You've been given a life. You're sitting here in it. Today, you're living it. Live it well. Live it well. It doesn't mean you're going to be where you're at today forever. That's not what that means. We have everybody in this room as a testament to the fact that that is not true. You do not stay in one place. Live today well, and you will go across the bridge with the bow. Just don't jump. Don't jump. When you're in that in prone, if you're, if you're like me and you're prone to anxiety, you get into places where you feel your heart rate go up, start to feel hot, you start to feel a little confused. Don't honor the fight or flight or freeze. Go to wisdom. Don't honor the tree of I know better. James says, when we lack wisdom, we should believe God gives generously and ask, but ask without any doubt, because the doubter does not receive. In other words, if you don't have faith, you won't receive the gifts of faith because they come packaged within faith. You don't receive them because you can't receive something you're unwilling to carry. That's wild. Okay, so the gifts that I'm going to get by asking come to me in an envelope of faith. But if I'm unwilling to pick up that envelope, I will not get the gifts inside of it. I must commit to faith. That is the way of Jesus. So that means when I do that meditation next week and I say, I feel insignificant if I were to say that truest thing about me. And I know God says, you are loved. Then if I believe and act out of the fact that I am loved, I will grow in Christ. I will begin to walk across the bridge with the bell.
And it's my understanding. It's, it's actually been my, it, how do I say this? Intuition, sense. I have a sense that when God says, okay, if you can say the truest thing about you is that I carry you, that I, God, carry you, then I will carry you so you can carry others. But it is out of the love of Jesus that we are actually enabled, that we are actually capable of overflowing and pouring out. That that enjoyment that is manifested in us can grow within us. And now we are useful, much more useful to family, to community, and to our meaningful work. So join me in this prayer. Pray this over us, and we're going to have a little bit of interactive prayer time with each other. This God is the true desire of my heart, is to love you and be fully loved by you. I believe this will bring true, lasting impact, purpose, and goodness out of my life. Amen.